Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 22 will be our text this morning. We're finishing out this triplet of Old Testament saints that are referenced for their faith at the end of their life. It forces us to consider that inevitable day that we all will one day face is the coming to the end of our life. And we have a, before us this wonderful example in both Isaac and Jacob. But then this morning we come to that of Joseph. And Joseph at this point in his life, now he's at the end of his life, he's nonetheless a very wealthy, a very powerful and influential individual. He is at the peak of power that one is possibly able to attain <coughs> apart from some sort of hereditary um, enthronement to kingship. Joseph is the most powerful person in the world uh, only next to Pharaoh. And it's interesting when you consider what Scripture has to say of those that are wealthy those that are powerful, those that have much in this life. You consider the words of Jesus, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What we see... And Joseph is that by God's grace, he endures the allurements of the world, the riches of the world. He's not tempted by the things of the flesh, the riches and the power and the wealth and all that comes with that. But what we actually see in Joseph is one who has all of those things, but yet in the midst of that, he's a man that had kept his eyes firmly upon the promise of the coming Messiah. And it's accounted to him as righteousness. And so we read this testimony of him in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. We see three things in this text that I want to point out. We first see the end, the end of his life. We see the exodus. And finally, we see eternity before us. So we see the end, we see the exodus, and we see eternity all mentioned in verse 22. And beginning with the end, that is, it's at the end of his life. He's, he's coming close to drawing his final breath, his heart beating its final beat. Joseph, in this moment, gives his final testimony to the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Joseph reaches the end of his life, he looks forward, he looks beyond his final earthly breath to that which lies ahead. And according to the text of Scripture, he does this by faith. And so he dies in faith. He dies by faith. 
I just want to for a moment reflect on this phrase in the text, at the end of his life, which refers to completion. In fact, it could be at the completion of his life, and we might think that that's insignificant, but in the life of Joseph, it's rather significant how he himself viewed his own life and how he viewed the completion of his life himself. And so I think it's appropriate to reflect upon this phrase that he has reached completion. Specifically, he has reached the point in his life where he has completed the task that God had for him. Joseph looks back upon his life, and as he's breathing his final breath, it's not, a, it's not a breathing of regrets, but it's rather he's breathing out, recognizing that God had used him and completed his task with him. Now, what was the task? Joseph identifies this task when his father dies. And you'll remember Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, They abused him, and when his father dies, his brothers naturally have a a fear. Now Joseph is going to seek vengeance on us. He's going to get revenge upon us. And what what does Joseph say to his brothers? In chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 19, Joseph said to his brothers, Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God? Now notice what he says. This is... He's going to put put the, the summary statement of what God had done in his life. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, all that has transpired in my life was according to God's sovereign plan for my life. And specifically, he goes on to say to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In other words, when Joseph gets to the end of his life, he looks upon his life and recognizes that God had chosen him for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose for him was that life would be preserved through him. He recognizes God's sovereignty in his life through the the hardships, through the evil actions of men, through the, the wickedness and sinfulness of people, and the results of things such as what we would call natural disasters, but insurance companies rightly calls them acts of God. He recognizes all of these things as being according to the sovereign plan of God. And as he looks back upon his life, he says, this God meant. And so as he gets to the completion of his life, he's recognizing God has used me in this way. When you get to the end of Joseph's life, you think in many ways that it was a wonderful life. He was very wealthy, he was very powerful, he was very influential. But if you actually look at the the road to getting to where he ends his life, it was anything but a simple and easy life. In fact, Psalm 105 interprets this for us. And let me just read it. It's in Psalm 105, verse 16. 
when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. That is, the, the Lord brought about this famine. He sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Notice this, is that God sends Joseph for this task that he is to complete. God is the one who ordains all that is taking place with the weather, with his brothers. This is the channel through which God is accomplishing his plan by sending Joseph ahead of them. You would think that when God is going to use us for some specific purpose, he might take us there in a chariot of luxury. But the text says, who was sold as a slave... His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. And the Psalms are the only place that really teaches this about Joseph, is that he was basically put in chains. It was painful. It was a physical uh, pain that he had to deal with. Until what he said had come to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent, that's Pharaoh, sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure to teach his elders wisdom. It's incredible what Joseph went through to get there. It goes on to say in Psalm 105, Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. All that takes place in Joseph's life after Joseph's life was ordained from eternity by God. Now, how did Joseph endure through all of this? That he would be wrongly accused, all of the physical tortures that he had to face. It's interesting when you consider Joseph in Scripture. He's actually quite unique in that I cannot find any explicit statement of Joseph that speaks of him in a negative light. In fact, everything that's stated of Joseph is, is he is a premier example of faith and steadfast faith to the Lord. There's only one little place that someone maybe could infer something negative about him, but I, I don't think you can really infer anything negative stated about Joseph in Scripture. And why is that? Why is it that, that nothing stated negatively about him explicitly and he endures through all the hardships that he did. Well, Scripture gives us the answer. And we have to take note of this because before we start to praise Joseph, which would be to miss the point, rather we have to recognize the God that Jacob served. In Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's speech, we read another interpretation. It says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. How is it that Joseph was able to endure through all that he faced? Well, the text tells us. We just read it. God was with him through it all. In the same way that he's with all of us through all of the afflictions. 
You notice in Acts it continues to say, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. What's amazing when you look at the totality of what Scripture says of Joseph, this text is really crucial because we read already that it was God that delivered him. It was God that sent him ahead of the patriarchs. It was according to God's plans that he would go through these afflictions, that he would actually suffer. But then in Acts, it tells us that God also then delivers him out of that. God was always with him, guiding and directing him every step of the way. And so Joseph, as he reflects upon his life, he understood God's sovereignty in all human events. But specifically, he recognized the particularity of God's sovereignty in his own life. God had completed the task through him. And so as he's dying, he recognizes that all of his experiences were the channel through which the promises of God would be realized. Both Genesis and Hebrews makes this rather explicit. Joseph's path, if you think about it, was the dungeon, from the dungeon to the court. That was the path he had to travel. How often it is when we look back upon our lives, we, we see that in our pilgrimage, oftentimes in God's providence, part of the path is the mud. Part of the path is the, the, the suffering and the pain and the valley of sorrows, as the Psalms say. But yet we see, as Joseph did, that it is actually God's providence leading us through that. How, how do we explain the valley of sorrow that we oftentimes face? If we thought it was just chance or by accident, we would be the most hopeless people. We would think things just happen by accident rather than recognizing that there's a sovereign God in heaven who created us, who sustains us, and is the one who is leading us. And as he's dying, his focus is not in the moment, not in the past, but rather looking forward to a greater reality. And I think that it is because that by faith he lived with this perspective. If you know the story of Joseph, he was 17 years old when he went to Egypt. 17 years old. By all accounts, Joseph is an Egyptian. He lives 110 years, and most of those years that he lives his life are in Egypt, save for some of his formative years. He spends his life as an Egyptian in Egypt. And what happened to him? It's amazing when you read the account of him when he got to Egypt. We read in chapter 
39 of Genesis, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph gets to Egypt after the traumatic experience of being sold by his brother. He then is the Lord is with him. He becomes successful. Even the master of the house recognizes that the Lord is with him and he all of these things the Lord caused him to succeed. You think Joseph then would be pretty optimistic about the outlook on life? He has a privileged position, but then what happens? Well, we read that he was sold over because he was wrongly accused by his master's wife. He ends up in prison. We read this, though, that even there, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Notice what it says. The Lord showed him steadfast love. Where? In prison. I don't think that the Egyptian prison system was like our California prison system. I would say it was probably a little bit more difficult for him. But notice what it says, that the Lord loved him and gave him favor. That is, that the Lord gave him grace even when he was in prison. He's rising to success again. In verse 23 of 39, it says, The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Was it because of Joseph's natural talents? Was it because Joseph was just so faithful? No, it was because of God's grace, God's favor, that God had placed his steadfast love upon Joseph, that Joseph lived this faithful life. He lives in prison for two years, enduring the prison system. But then we read, he comes out of this, and he then himself is able to experience the blessing of his higher position when he comes out of prison and becomes elevated to the highest in power. He recognizes this period of time in Genesis 41 where he names his children. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all of my father's house. 52, it says, the name of the second Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So if we ever think that Joseph was just riding it high in Egypt, how did he view his own position? It's not where he wanted to be. It's not what he wanted but throughout it all, he recognizes God's love upon him. He recognizes God's favor upon him. And this is God's grace in his life, that he's able to recognize God's hand in all that takes place. Throughout his struggles, the Lord was with him. And the Lord did not remove him from Egypt. 
but rather kept him in Egypt, and Joseph was never able to depart. Yet he says the Lord was with him. I think of Paul when he's chosen by God, and God says, this is my chosen instrument through which the Gentiles will know my name. He must know the suffering I have in store for him. You think of Paul on his way to Rome as he's facing prison. What does Paul recognize repeatedly through the book of Acts? But the Lord Christ stood by me. The Lord Christ was with me through it all. And so Joseph recognizes the Lord was with him. And it's, it's amazing that, that he recognizes all that he did, but he recognized all that he did because he had the word of God. Now Joseph was in a very unique position. If you remember in Joseph's life, he had received a dream from the Lord. And he told his brothers of this dream, he says, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And that angers his brothers because he's saying, I had this dream that I'm going to be superior to you. You're going to bow down to me. And then he tells it to his dad that his dad will even bow down to him. And Jacob was, Jacob was perplexed by it, but then thought about it. And Joseph had the word of God revealed to him by dreams. In fact, we know that it is through dreams that he interprets for Pharaoh. This is what was said of him in, in chapter 41 of Genesis. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When he told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. And Joseph himself recognizes that the ability to interpret dreams was not from his own natural disposition or natural giftedness or because he had some sort of supernatural power. He tells Pharaoh that this is from God that I'm able to do this. And so he received the word of God through special revelation. Now, just, I just want to be super clear for a moment here. Just in case anyone says, I had a dream, and it means something, because what Hebrews tells us, we're in Hebrews, Hebrews tells us this, long ago at many times and in many ways, one of the, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So what Hebrews is telling us is God spoke to our former prophets in many ways. One of those many ways was through dreams, but you'll notice what Hebrews say, says is, but in these last days he has spoken, that means completion of revelation, is now in his son. But I mention all of this about the ability to interpret dreams is because Joseph is not being led just by his own imagination. He's being led by the word of God. And the Word of God is directing him all the way through, and he recognizes this. He even states that the Word of God is leading him in what he says in his final words, which comes out as he makes first reference to the Exodus. In Hebrews, it tells us, quote, that he made mention of the Exodus of the Israelites. And so what is leading Joseph 
In this life of faith is the word of God that his final breathing words that we have recorded are that of the Exodus, something yet to happen. Just like Isaac in his final breath said something that was yet to happen as Jacob in his final words was saying something that was yet to happen. And it says specifically in the text that he made mention of this. This can be translated, he remembered. So as he's dying, the words of God to Abraham come to mind. So it means this is that the exodus and the idea of God's deliverance of his people was always close to his heart and mind that he makes mention of this. And we read of this account in Genesis 50. It says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What was Joseph's eyes set upon? It was set upon God's promises. It was set upon what God had actually promised to Abraham, where he says that his people will have to endure suffering. In fact, we read in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. As Joseph looks upon that and he's trying to encourage his brothers, he's recognizing that what God said is this momentary uh, privilege of power and wealth that Joseph and his brothers are experiencing is going to soon expire. God is going to lead you through suffering. But, verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In other words, part of that Abrahamic promise was not only that they would endure suffering in Egypt, but that God would also rescue them. And so Egypt was not just an unexpected hurdle in God's plan, but was rather according to his perfect and eternal plan. And if we view our lives in any other way, then we would think that something happened in our lives that was special and unique and outside of God's plan, outside of God's control, outside of God's purposes for our lives. If we think that whatever we face is a hurdle for the moment to God, we're reminded it's not, but actually according to God's eternal plan. Joseph uses this word, God will visit you. And God does visit them after Joseph is long gone. We read of it in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. It says, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That idea of visit, it usually has two different contexts, but it's always referring to the special presence of God. 
And those two contexts that it comes in is either that of judgment. God visits them in judgment. God visits them in famine. So it's speaking of a fearful thing, or it can refer to rescue. And so when it's speaking of God visiting here, obviously it's speaking to God's special presence in rescuing a people. And Joseph is leaning upon God's word that is telling his brothers, we're going to face hardship, we're going to face trouble, but God is going to rescue us from this because he's going to visit us. But why does he say this to his brothers? Well, I think he says it to his brothers in part because of their fickle nature. His brothers were a mess. And so in many ways, I think what Joseph is trying to do is he's trying to encourage his brother. He's seeking to encourage them not to look to the riches of Egypt, not to look to the the position of power that they may experience or the, the favors they may experience by being the family of Joseph. Don't look to these worldly things, but rather he reminds them that God had promised them a greater land. And the one thing we have to recognize is this promise, it wasn't immediate. He doesn't close his eyes and they experience the promised land, but they endure for years and years and years of hardship. And the whole way keeping their eyes upon the promise that God had made. Now it says that Joseph made mention of this. Again, that can be meaning he remembered. Let me just say very practically, he remembered God's word in a crucial moment. He remembered God's word when, when it, it really counted. He, he remembered God's word in a time of need. As he was preparing to die, and he is the faithful one of the family, he looks to his brothers to share the word that they needed most. God's word functions this way for us, is that it is a comfort for us as it was a comfort to Joseph in a time of need. You think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 77, the psalmist says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Or his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? For those that were suffering in Egypt, and at points in Joseph's life, he might have been tempted to think, Has God forgotten me? And he faces his end of his life knowing that God was always with him. He has to say to his brothers that may be tempted to say, Has God forgotten his grace? Has God forgotten his love? Has has God forgotten me? He recalls God's word. Just what the psalmist does in Psalm 77, after he asks these questions of, will the Lord spurn me forever? Will he never be favorable for me? Has he forgotten his grace? The psalmist says, then I said, I will appeal to this, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. 
in that time of crisis, in that time of need. It is the Word of God that Joseph appeals to. It is the Word of God that brings comfort. And it is the Word of God that he shares with his brethren that they may be comforted as well. So God's Word comforted him on his dying bed. And it was that same Word that was present throughout his life that had guided him and that had directed him. And we have to see a rich legacy in this. Not only did Joseph had a special revelation of God in a very unique way through, through dreams, we also have to recognize something about his family upbringing. And I think this is crucial. When Abraham was chosen and the plan of God for his life and his future progeny and for the Messiah that would come was given to Abraham, what was Abraham told to do by God and what did Abraham do in regards to this plan that God had revealed to him? Well, Genesis tells us. It says this in Genesis 18, 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, when Abraham was called by God, God instructs him and gives him this purpose that God's word would be not only given to Abraham, but God's word would then be spoken through Abraham to his family, that God's word would be preserved for the generations. Could it be that that is how we have such detailed records of what took place is because they were kept and Moses wrote them down for us. And so what Jacob was taught by Isaac, Isaac was taught by Abraham, and they had all taught this to their children. Jacob taught these things to Joseph. The first 17 years of his life, he would have heard God's word. And then he's removed at the tender age of 17. And God's word of the Exodus remains with him all those years. And so on his deathbed, he remembers that which he was taught from childhood to look forward to the promises of God that will be realized. In order... For Joseph to make mention of them. He had to know this word. He had to believe this word. He had to assent to the truth of God's word. May we do this in our own life, but also quick to share it with others in time of need. And so there's two points we need to recognize. Others need to hear the word of God. He's sharing the word of God with his brothers. His final words are to share the word of God, because his brothers needed to hear it. His brothers needed to be encouraged. Their family needed to be encouraged. And so he doesn't give them advice about leadership or anything else. He doesn't give them a final pep talk. He doesn't do anything like that. He simply gives them the word of God pointing towards the promises of God. Others need the word of God, but we individually need to hear the word of God as he was drawing close to the end, he himself needed to be comforted with the promises that he didn't get to realize. 
He didn't get to experience the promised land. He didn't get to experience those things. And so what brings him comfort is that they are as good as have happened. Remember, that's what faith is. Faith is looking at those things that have yet to have happened, but when we, we, by hope, we hope in those things, and by faith, those things that are yet to have happened are actually a tangible reality right now. So the promised land was there before him, even though he had yet experienced it. And this is why he speaks of eternity after he speaks of the Exodus. He speaks of eternity by simply giving them direction concerning his bones. Now, the word bones is pretty specific. He recognizes that he is going to be in Egypt as a dead person for some time. He doesn't say, remove my body. He says, my bones now, I know that we, it says that he was in, embalmed, and we know about Egyptian embalming that took place that it, that it preserves remarkably well. But he instructs them of his bones, and he commands this of his brothers. In, in Genesis 50, verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, just like his dad had made him swear. God will surely visit you, and you shall, this is the command, you shall carry up my bones from here. This doesn't happen until you get to Exodus in chapter 13 and verse 19, where we read this, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. A long time away from the moment where Joseph's dying, it's realized that his bones are taken, but yet they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And the children of Israel keeping those bones that's the only mention we have of them taking them. It's not until in Joshua that they finally reach their final resting place. In Joshua chapter 24, in verse 32, we read this, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the peace of the land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Decades and decades and decades later, his bones are finally buried as he had commanded his brothers to do. And what's remarkable about this desire for his bones, we have to think about this. In terms of the position that Joseph was in and what we know about Egyptian history, what did they do for powerful people that were buried there? They built big edifices for them that still stand today that are modern marvels of the world. And so what's remarkable in the death of Joseph, we see no vain glory in him, but rather a testimony of God's marvelous grace in his life. He was number two in Egypt. He was viewed in Egypt as a savior through supernatural means. 
And think about it. How would the people that were very superstitious in Egypt and had the multiplicity of gods that they worshipped, how would they view Joseph, this man that interpreted dreams exactly on dates and things very specific as God had told him, how would they view him? He might have been number two, but he, he had to have been viewed by the Egyptians as, as someone spectacular. And so when he died, the Egyptians would have honored him in a co- corresponding manner. They might have even worshipped him. And so for him to say, remove my bones, don't let me be associated with this, his dying testimony is to really prevent idol worship. He doesn't want his legacy to be in Egypt. I mean, we, we might be visiting, if he hadn't have done this, we might be visiting the, the pyramid of Joseph today. But we don't visit the pyramid of Joseph. We don't know where Joseph's bones are. And so despite being in Egypt for so long and really the majority of his life, he was never an Egyptian. Let that sink in. He was never an Egyptian. He was an exile. How is it that we view our life? Where is our citizenship? Is it in the dirt? Seeking the vain glory and praise of man that's here today and gone tomorrow? Or is our citizenship in heaven? From it we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to uphold all things. We're so quick to become Egyptians, aren't we? We we crave being Egyptians. There's something else here. He desires for his brothers to be strengthened in their own faith to look forward to God's promises. He's calling his brothers to look to God's word. In many ways, he's calling his brothers in this is, don't be attached to the things of this world. You remember when he told his brothers, don't delay long, don't fight on the way when you go back in to get our father, because he knew their fickle nature. He's calling them to imitate his own actions. You think of how many times Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He knew suffering was in store for them, so he encourages them with God's word. He he refocuses their attention not on the riches that they might have experienced here, but actually points them forward. And he, like Jacob, gives the lasting testimony that he will soon be in eternity fellowshipping with the saints. And as we studied last week, burial was a sign of the communion that we would have in eternity. And so for the desire of Jacob to be buried in the land of Canaan was Jacob's desire to be back with Isaac and to be with Abraham, to be in that which Paul says in Ephesians is our family in heaven. He desired to be in a communion of saints with departed souls. He desired to be rejoicing in eternity before his Savior. 
And his burial was a testimony, not only of the resurrection that he would one day experience, but also that he had reached his heavenly home. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, in short, Joseph would have all know. In other words, when he says this, he says, take my bones there. It's for a testimony, for people to know. Manton goes on to say that he would have all people know that he did not die an Egyptian, but in expectation of the enjoyment of a heavenly life with all the patriarchs of which this country was a figure. Take my bones and take them to where they belong. It was a sign that he was not an Egyptian, but rather an exile waiting for something greater. You know, when you think of this, this is his dying speech. You know, there's all sorts of famous last words that you can read of people that they've said and they're fascinating to read. We get to read Joseph's last words. And what was his dying speech? It laid hold of the promises. And he shares these things to strengthen his own heart, to witness to his brothers, to be a lasting testimony, which draws me to this question for us to reflect upon this morning, and it's a weighty question. Is this simply, is your dying speech prepared? Is your heart ready to propound the glorious truths which have resided in your heart are you prepared to share the hope that you have of Christ to encourage the brethren as you depart from this world, which we all one day will? Are you prepared to give your final testimony to the world? I think what we see in Joseph is this, is what, what has filled our hearts in this life will be manifested in our final words. So that, that draws us to the question is, does Christ fill your heart? Does the unmerited grace of Christ provide your heart with joy and flood your memories at all times through hardships, through afflictions, through joys? What is it that fills your heart? Is it the joy to know that you cannot work your way to heaven, but Christ has earned it on your behalf? Does the joy of knowing Christ suffered the wrath of God on our behalf fill our hearts that we want to share the hope that we have of Christ? Does the hope of heaven fill our hearts that we want to share don't bury my bones in Egypt, but rather take them to the bosom of Abraham. What are we prepared to say for our final speech? I don't think that that's a, a bad question to ask because we have read of three in a row in Hebrews of what they did as they breathed their last breath, which draws us to reflect upon what Christ has done in our life and how that will manifest itself in our lives by His grace. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your mercy that You give us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise You for the gospel, the good news that sets us free. We thank You, Father, that through this world we are but exiles 
May we recognize that and know that. As we face hardships, may we always remember that you are sovereign over all circumstances. And that even the events of our lives are preparation for the return of Christ. And our lives fit into your grand scheme of the return of your Son. Father, may we always remember this because we don't always recognize it, but we are reminded by your word of your particularity over your people and care for them. May we take great comfort in this as we face hardships. May we always have joy in trials and suffering, knowing that you are with us. Father, we pray this morning that your presence with us would be an encouragement and a comfort to us now. Fill our hearts with assurance of faith that we may have in Christ. And fill our hearts with anticipation of eternity with Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.